0: So how many of you felt an earthquake this morning? It may be kind of a loaded question since we live on a fault line, but I'll ask it anyway. How many of you felt a experienced a foundation-shaking, rock-moving earthquake this morning? Raise your hand. Bummer. It's too bad. Okay, Maybe an even more loaded question. How many of you received a vision and a vocal proclamation from a heavenly messenger this morning? Guys, no earning brownie points by being, yes, it was my wife saying, good morning, dear. (laughs) Okay. How many of you received a vision or a vocal proclamation from a supernatural heavenly messenger this morning? If I see any hands raised, we're going to have a chat. Mostly about why you did and I didn't. Here's the thing, I think it can be kind of easy for us to get lost in all of these dramatic events that happen at the time of the resurrection. These things that Matthew records in his description of the Easter Sunday account, and they're just, they're so removed from our understanding sometimes we might experience the earth shake or move, but we don't immediately associate that with some kind of epic event or sign of portent that something big spiritually is happening. We say, oh, I hope it's not the big one. And we straighten the, you know, picture frames and we move on. And, and even as believers, I think we become so familiar with this idea That we are potentially receiving encouragement and information and instruction from the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. That the concept of an encounter with a supernatural messenger has become more easily categorized in the area of mental imbalance than divine interruption. Now, I don't know what we're supposed to do with that, but I can say this. While the people in the churches that Matthew's writing to, they were not near as far as removed as we are from that day that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm doubtless that the possibility exists that the resurrection had started to become a foregone conclusion for most of them. And that familiarity had started to invite kind of a sense of complacency with them into their discipleship. And when we look at the reasons that Matthew makes his account the most dramatic of the four tellings of the gospel, I think it's because he was aware of the tendency for us to just kind of gloss over the things that we know well. How we speed through the terrible Friday of the cross and the even more terrible span of that empty Sabbath Saturday and, and through the events of the first Easter. I want to remind you of something today. What is a foregone conclusion for you and I that Jesus rose from the dead is not a foregone conclusion here. It's not. It's not. Not for anyone associated with Jesus. They didn't know the resurrection was happening. The women come from the tomb with only... They come come out and they come that morning, they have one expectation. To look on the tomb, sealed up, holding not only the one that they love, but apparently all of their hopes and their dreams and their future as well. That's what they expect to see. That's what they plan to do. They're coming out to have one last little quiet memorial service. As one Christian songwriter wrote about it, oh, oh, that long Saturday between your death and the rising day when no one wrote a word and everyone wondered, is this the end? And when we don't allow ourselves to experience that space, when we just kind of speed through the resurrection as a given for Jesus, it becomes powerless for us, I believe. It becomes impossible for us to respond the way that the two Marys did on that day, overwhelmed with great fear and great joy. And that seems to be exactly what Matthew's trying to kind of pull up in the readers of his gospel, both then and now. It's as if he says, look, Easter's not really going to dawn for you Unless, unless you are able to feel the earth shake again. Unless you're able to hear the angelic messenger again. And this is why I'm telling you all this. Easter's got to dawn for you again so that you can move to be, be moved to follow the instructions of the risen Savior. And, and that's really the whole point of Matthew telling the Easter account, right? And you may be... You may need to slow down a little. Actually, you know what? We'll all slow down so that you can hear this with me. I'm kind of getting over the top of myself. I'm excited about this part, okay? But I really want you to hear this. Sometimes the most simple observations are the most profound ones. And if we skip over them, we're going to miss the point. And, And the most direct, most primary observation when we read Matthew 28 that Fred just read is this. The passage we read this morning is not a resurrection story. Put your rocks down. Just think about this for a second, okay? The passage that we read this morning is not a resurrection story. Hope you're all awake now. Let me explain. Matthew never describes how the resurrection of Jesus happens. In fact, you aren't going to find an account of it in any of the Gospels. Because some events, like what Jesus experienced internally when he took the weight of the world's sin on the cross, or what happened on that silent Saturday between the grave and the rising... And how he was raised? Oh, church, those things are just simply beyond the realm of even our imagination. They're too amazing. They're too profound. They are too full of the wonder of God to even try and put in words. They're beyond the realm of description. They're beyond the realm of proofs. Let the theologians speculate. Let the preachers try and come up with the perfect words. But ultimately, the resurrection is beyond us. It's just too beautiful. It's just too big. It's just too amazing. It's just too God. God. It lies behind a veil of mystery and majesty, and Matthew's not going to try to penetrate that. In fact, the only ones who might have even had a glimpse of what the resurrection actually looked like are shaken more than the earth itself. The Roman equivalent of a special forces team lies scattered and senseless and limp on the ground, overwhelmed by the mere reality, the mere possibility of a resurrected Jesus They can't tell us what goes on. They don't even know where they are. They don't even know what day it is. They're not even sure that they're alive anymore. The ones who are more than ready to prevent resurrection fraud are completely and totally unprepared to deal with resurrection truth. No one's going to try and reduce what happened this morning on Easter, to verbal images or phrases. Matthew's not going to tell us a resurrection story. You know what he is going to tell us? He's going to tell us a story of the revelation of that resurrection to human beings and the impact of that resurrection on human lives. What it means to see the resurrection and what the resurrection is supposed to do to you. That's the story that Matthew tells That's the story that we need to hear. And that's why the ground shakes. That's why this brilliant supernatural messenger kind of relaxes atop this massive boulder in the midst of a bunch of incoherent war veterans. What has happened in mystery is going to change all understanding. What begins as a gut level of fear and joy reaction has to translate into life change. That's what the resurrection does. The resurrection of Jesus utterly shatters for all time and for all people this notion that we can go back to business as usual. Nobody gets to do that now. The message that the angel delivers is really simple, and yet it's so packed with meaning. You're looking for the one who's been crucified But he isn't here. He has been raised as he told you he would. Two really powerful statements. Two really powerful statements to these ladies. First, this is not the end of the story. This is not the resting place of your hopes and your dreams and your future any longer. Story doesn't end here. Story is just getting started. There's a new story being wit- written because God has unwound the grasp of death from his beloved son. That that can't be understated easier either. Jesus' resurrection was not some function of his nature or some function of his status, or else it becomes meaningless to you and I. I, don't, I, what, I what I mean is simply this. If Jesus had if he wasn't as dead as you or I are able to be then it's meaningless he had to be as dead as any of us so that we can have any hope that he's the forerunner in life and death and eternity for us and one of my kids asked the question like like so why I don't understand like Jesus he's he's raised and he's resurrected but he's still got like the, the the hole in his side and he's still got the the holes in his hands and, and in his feet like dad does that mean like if I die some crazy way like when I get resurrected I'm be like some zombie and I'll be like oh you know I don't I don't understand and I went oh no 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 you don't understand you, you don't understand Jesus doesn't have those things Because that's how you get resurrected. Jesus has those things because those are his badges of honor as king. Because of how he was made king. Nobody else is going to be made king like him. And so nobody else gets to wear the badges of honor of being king. I said, but they're also for you and me for you and me to remember that he was just as dead as we will be and just as alive as we will be. See, if Jesus merely revives like Superman or something, the story is not only irrelevant, it's cruel. Because Jesus can do that and I can't. But the Father has raised him from the dead. And death is now disarmed. And if something as final, as something as powerful, as something as real, as something as, as, as cruel and common to all of us as death, if that can get overturned, well, now anything's possible. even if it doesn't feel like it right now. And I know there's a lot of us here at Easter who may not really feel like that right now. But I want to remind you that if death can be overturned, anything is possible now. But see, that's not the end of the message either. Not only is a new story being written it's already in motion. Jesus isn't just hanging around the tomb going isn't it great that I got resurrected. Jesus is already heading back into Galilee. And the women are now they're not just they're not just given the hope of the resurrection, they now have a mission because of the resurrection. They're given a sacred charge. Bring the divine instruction to the rest of the disciples. Go meet him there. Go to Galilee. Already the earth-shaking reality of the resurrection is tied to a gospel that's out ahead of everybody. And they're required to respond. Is it too good to be true still? Quite possibly. Fear is warring with joy right now. There's a lot of fear battling with the sparks of joy inside these women. But the two Marys are not content to merely stay and marvel and wonder at the Easter miracle. They allow themselves to be motivated and empowered by it. And they get up on shaky legs and they run propelled by that hope. And then quite suddenly, Jesus is there. As they run from the tomb. It's, it's almost comical how undramatic Jesus' entry is compared to how big everything else is, right? There's no, there's no more earthquakes. There's, there's, you know, nobody else has to, like, shake and fall down. You know, like, there's no fireworks. There's no, like, rock concert power chords or anything like that. He's just there. No supernatural acts no shiny clothing, he's just there. And the fact that he is there is totally supernatural enough, right? It's enough for him to just be real. And his presence and his greeting, they are enough to end that battle between fear and joy in these two ladies. They move to him without fear. They just, they just go, right? There's no questions, there's no nothing. They just go and they embrace these feet that are both holy and familiar and they just offer up their praise. That's what they do. And I love his greeting. Kirete, he responds to them. Again, familiar but holy. That is, that is way more than a simple, hi, how you doing kind of greeting. It, I mean, it has that. It has that meaning to it. It's kind of a "Hiya, how are you?" But it's the same exclamation that Paul is later going to use to describe the imperative Christian attitude in Philippians four. It's a single word. It's a single word with so much meaning packed into it. Rejoice, says Jesus. Let the joy. Overtake the fear and move you into the reality of my resurrection, says Jesus. Because I'm here with you. I mean, for of course, death is unwound and defeated. So it's entirely possible for Jesus to fully embody Emmanuel and be everywhere and every when now. Both with the women and on the way to Galilee at the same time. Anything's possible now. Anything's possible now. And then Jesus repeats the message to them with one really critical twist. While the angel, the divine messenger, calls them disciples, Jesus says this, Tell my brothers to head to Galilee. I'm going to meet them there. Boy, that's so important if they're going to hear this message. And it's so important for if you and I are going to hear this message. I mean, we already know this, right? Who are the mothers and the brothers and the sisters of Jesus? They're the ones who don't simply acknowledge the truth of the kingdom of God. They're the ones that allow it to motivate them to live and act within it, right? But there's even more than that. Because there's a great forgiveness and a great invitation there, Right? Jesus is not going to abandon the ten that abandoned him. And he's not going to deny the one that denied him. There's a new story being written, and now anything is possible. And this is what is so critical for Jesus. That those who follow him know that he is simultaneously with them, And that he's out ahead of them at the same time. That he's out blazing a trail for the gospel that they're going to embody. As powerful as the empty tomb is, church, as dramatic as the scenery is, as dramatic as the events that herald it and show it, they're absolutely nothing. If they don't empower us to move forward in the reality that it creates. Jesus isn't content to just stay at the tomb and say, isn't it a great thing that I'm resurrected? His followers cannot, must not be content to stay at the tomb and say, isn't it a great thing that because of Jesus we're resurrected? And our lives are resurrected and they're all put back together and, and we're whole and we're new and there's a new story. All of this stuff is fantastic. But here we're celebrating the empty tomb and Jesus says it's time to go to Galilee. Not stay at the tomb. Right? No. No, <laughs> nope, don't stay here, she says. It's good. I like interactive sermons. Good. Jesus is no more at the tomb now than he is at the cross. He's out in Galilee. And the irony is is that that's a return to the familiar in every way for all of the disciples. The Jerusalem trip is over, and now we're all heading back home. Back to the shore where we hauled in fish every morning and we mended our nets every afternoon. We're heading back to the town where we used to sit in our tax collector booth and serve the empire. We're heading back to our parents and our spouses and our children and our jobs. It's time to go home. Back to the old stomping grounds where all this started, where everything we know is exactly the way that we left it. Except for the fact that nothing is the same anymore. Nothing. Nothing. All the powers that set themselves up against the king, they've been disarmed. They've been overthrown. It's not the same anymore. Death itself is undone. There's a new story being written. Anything is possible. And so what are they going to choose to do? Are they going to embrace the familiar in Galilee? Or are they going to go meet Jesus in Galilee? Either one of those things could happen. Some of the other gospel accounts show the disciples even wrestling with this, right? They're kind of like, I don't know what we're supposed to do now. Here we are back home. And Peter's like, I I guess I'm just going to go fishing because that's what I know to do. Right? And he goes back and he's sitting in the familiar and then Jesus comes in and just kind of sidelines him out of the familiar. And back into the reality that this is not the same. This is not the same because I am risen. And the power that has raised me is alive in you and transforming you. You don't go back to being the same after that. It's a real question. Different people answer it in different ways. Matthew will say later in verse 17 some go to Galilee and they worship him in devotion, but some allow reservation to win. You know, it says some worshiped him, some doubted. There's always going to be that opportunity for us to be like, yes, the resurrection, that's amazing. But I don't know if I'm willing to move from acknowledgement to devotion. I don't know about that one. And that's, that's really the true challenge that the resurrection lays out for you and I this Easter. And, and frankly, all the time. You and I will leave today with the eastern message in our ears and we will go back to those same places and those same jobs and those same families and they look oh so familiar nothing's changed but everything has changed see the gospel's not back at your acknowledgement of the empty tomb miraculous as that is okay that's that's not where the gospel lives (coughs) Jesus and his gospel, they're waiting out ahead of you in Galilee, in your Galilee. They're calling for you to come out and live the resurrection, not just acknowledge that it happens, not even just believe that it's true, to live out of it. For if you have not felt the earth move, if you have not heard the angel voice, Easter's not dawn for you. But if you have not obeyed the command of the master to come and join him, even so much more of that story remains unrealized for you. Though he is with you, he is not here. He is out there, right? So let us go, church. Let us go in the power of God and find the joy that meeting him out in Galilee brings. Amen? Amen.